0: This um, Sunday's Gospel got me thinking about Major League Baseball. I know, it's it's how my mind works, one of the reasons why it was the despair of all my teachers. Anyway, Yogi Berra once said that the game of baseball isn't over until it's over. Now, that might sound self-evident, but when you consider the fact that, unlike basketball, football, hockey, and soccer, There is no game clock in baseball. The game may not be over until it's over. But when does over happen? The answer is, that depends. The longest baseball game in Major League history happened just down over here in 1985 when the White Sox played the Milwaukee uh, Brewers. Twenty-five innings. Eight hours and six minutes. The Sox won seven to six, but they had to play the game in two separate days. They ran out of hot dogs. The average duration of a baseball game is three hours, about the amount of time it takes to celebrate the major liturgy of the year, the Easter Vigil. Three hours is a good chunk of time to sit in a hard pew So, like the seventh-inning stretch, we all stand up at the end of the homily and process to the doors of the Church. And for the blessing of the Easter water and the renewal of our baptismal vows, turning to the west, we renounce Satan, and then turning to the east, we profess the faith in which we were baptized. We may not be aware of it, but at that moment, the liturgy is teaching us that there are two different ways of living. We either turn towards God and accept him, or we turn away from him and reject him and accept what is not like God. There is no ritual option for those who want to hedge their bets and face north or south. The simple act of turning our bodies east and west, voicing our assent to the mystery of faith, implies certain social and political consequences. Reciting the baptismal creed is a pledge of allegiance to a much different kingdom than the one that usually lays claims to our loyalties. We are publicly acknowledging that Christ has first claim over our bodies, minds, and hearts. And that is one of the great dramatic moments of the liturgical year. The drama is, will we have the courage to live as we have professed, or will we allow our loyalties to be compromised in one way or another? This is the context in which we have to begin to understand the words of Jesus in today's Gospel from Luke. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is shocking language. What could be more natural than to love our families? It gets worse. In all, Jesus lays down a series of conditions, three of them, for discipleship, renouncing family ties, forsaking possessions, and carrying our cross. It may be tempting for Catholics to think that Christ must be referring to monks nuns and other religious who've taken special vows to follow Christ. like It means it's safe to skip over this part and proceed directly to chapter 15, but we should resist that temptation. The Gospel is describing an undifferentiated group of people from various walks of life, not just Benedictines, Cistercians, Augustinians, Franciscans and a couple of Jesuits thrown in. These are people who are fishermen, shop owners, wives, mothers, vineyard owners, and shepherds. There's nothing special or unique about them. They're just regular people like us. Here, Luke is giving us an image of the church that exists in every age and culture, saints and sinners, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. But We know that what that crowd did not know, that Jesus, in the midst of giving this little talk, is on his way to Jerusalem to offer up his life for them and for us. This fact has escaped the crowd because they have not read the final chapters of Luke's Gospel in their Moroccan leather bound red letter version of the New Testament. They may be clueless But like Jesus, you and I are not. He knows what comes uh, in in a few short months, Good Friday. And many of these people will have lost their enthusiasm. There's nothing worse in Israel than a dead Messiah. There can be no hope in one of those. And in first century Israel, there were lots of dead Messiahs. This explains the harsh language that Jesus uses. Unless you pick up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. All four Gospels give us an account of the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The German Protestant theologian, Martin Kayler famously said that they were passion accounts with long introductions. But they were written, or I should say, they were not written in a theological or cultural void. They reflect the problems and concerns of the communities of believers who have listened and read them and studied them and prayed over them for the past 2,000 years. Imagine a small group of Christians in 1st century Antioch, Corinth, and Rome gathering early on a Sunday morning in secret in some private house. There's nothing special about them. They are slaves or former slaves, all of them converts from paganism, together with some Jewish Christians. They listen to this part of Luke's gospel, celebrate Eucharist, and are at the same time alert to the possibilities of a raid by imperial agents who consider Christians a subversive sect because they will not worship the emperor as divine. And are, said to be, and are said to practice ritual cannibalism. The words of the gospel would have reminded these little communities of faith that calculating the cost of discipleship might mean the tithe of one's own life. Or jump ahead to a Sunday morning, 1,100 years later, let's say around the year 1150, and you get a very different picture, no longer pagan Rome, but Christendom, In medieval Europe, it's estimated that in mid-century there were more than 10,000 Benedictine monasteries from Ireland to Poland, from Scandinavia to Sicily. And this does not include the Houses of Mendicant Orders or the Canons Regular. You couldn't have missed Mass on Sunday if you wanted to because Europe was just one big cloister. You fell out of bed and you landed on the steps of your local parish church. I wonder what the gospel and its demands would have meant for them. I hardly need to remind you that we're listening to this passage on a Sunday morning in the 21st century. The term increasingly used to describe this brave new world of ours is postmodern, though neo-pagan would also work. This is a culture where the quest for personal authenticity is carried out in terms of raw physical strength, political connections, expense accounts, sexual prowess, crass materialism, and conspicuous consumption. How should we hear the words of this gospel this morning? When we calculate the cost of our own discipleship, how much of what we hold near and dear Are we willing to sacrifice for the one who sacrificed himself for us?